0: Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we start off our 2024 theme focused on discipleship. We're really just going to be continuing our Life with Jesus series, but this time we'll be looking at what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus. Thanks for joining us this morning as we examine what is perhaps the most fundamental passage concerning Jesus's challenge for becoming disciples. There were two moments in my life as I give reflection into the past where everything that I thought I knew needed to be changed. Everything that I had planned or packaged for the purpose and direction of my life, which I thought was the only and right way to live had to be changed. The first time was when I got married, and that's not a joke, that's just true. (laughs) The the first time was when I got married, and the reason was because I, you know, thought I knew what it meant to marry my wife. I was excited uh, to be a husband, but I didn't really know what that meant until my identity was changed. For we came to that ceremony, two separate people, but we left as one. The the essence of marriage is that two become one. And so my identity changed and therefore everything I thought I knew had to change. The second time that this happened in my life was when my son was born. And I keenly remember that exact moment. I can't even remember the nine months prior with... Uh, heated anxiety that I was going to be a father. Uh, that's a whole other sermon you can talk to Emily about sometime. God's faithfulness to pull me through. But that moment in the, in the delivery room, that moment when I, I held this person, this newborn who could do nothing, and he looked right up at me, and I looked right back at him, and both of us were scared out of our wits. <laughs> That the nurse wasn't taking him back. It, he, he was now mine. And my identity changed. Up before this point, I was, I was a husband and I was a man and I could carry other labels that I, w- I would put upon myself. But that moment, I was a father. And everything I thought I knew was now changed completely. You know what? If I give some thought to it, there may be One more moment, perhaps the most important moment, where everything I thought I knew got completely changed because of my identity. And that's when I came to know my Savior, Jesus. The one thing about that third identity change is that it seems too often in our lives easier to get accessibility To the identity changes of husband or of wife or as father or of mother. But I am learning all the more that it needs to be a daily recalibration to embrace my identity of being a child of God. And that as I do this daily in my life, what I come to see is that everything I thought I knew actually needs to be reformed. It needs to be changed. And God does this in your life and he does this in mine, but he does so as we willingly submit. Because God in his kindness won't force you if this is your heart. If this is where you stand when it comes to having the reshaping of how you think, God will allow you to have that which you desire the greatest. And there's a name for this. It's a name that we don't, I think, throw around often enough. It's called it's called idolatry. That's what it's called. And I know for me, that term, even in through my Bible college days, was often thought of as this, like, some form of Hinduism or Buddhism, that an idol was this tiny little totem that people burn incest to. Um, but the truth is that idolatry is far more subtle and devious. Idolatry will show up in your life at every place where you elevate something above the glory of God. And so that means your life and mine are a continual, daily effort of reorienting our understanding, that we do not accidentally or unintentionally embrace idolatry, but that we would turn to the true living God to find that he reshapes how I think, and he reshapes therefore my life. This series that we're going to start for the next quite a few weeks, actually, it's going to get us close to Easter, is a series that has actually been Three years in the making. I want to. I want to go back uh, a few few years back. Every year at the start in January, um, through um, what is for me months and months of just prayer and seeking God. Is there a theme that you would give to our church that we might embrace throughout this whole calendar year? And two years ago, that theme was, do you remember, King Jesus. Do you remember that? Almost every study, almost every series that we looked at was finding some way of recognizing Jesus not as some great teacher, um, even not so much as personal savior, even though that is true, but that we would see him as the exalted king. And that in that view of Jesus's exaltation, we would have our lives shaped to follow in conformity to what what it means for Jesus to be king. And that led us into last year's theme, which was, for lack of a better word, an integration of the rule of King Jesus into every sphere of our lives. And it was at the last leadership team meeting a whole year ago that I outlined four of those areas. The widest circle that we have to embrace King Jesus has to do with missions, Going right here, starting in our hometown, and spreading as far as God's glory can reach. The Bible will call this the ends of the earth. And so we ask the question, how is Jesus king when it comes to missions? And then we took that widest circle and we, we narrowed it down. We shrunk it down, and, and the circle that's a little more accessible for us it was our community. And so we asked the question, how is Jesus king in our community? And then we shrunk it down further. And, and what we found is that you have the smallest subset of society is a marriage, is a family. And so how is Jesus king in my marriage? All right, this is all review of last year, right? Well, now we get to the very center of that circle. Now we're going to be dealing with With nothing external from you. For these next few weeks, we are going to be looking with microscopic precision at our own hearts. And we're going to ask the question, how is Jesus king over my life? How how is it that he is my king? And the term for this that we're going to use is discipleship. Now, beginning into this series, I have to start with what I believe are some very messy definitions. Because as we ask the question about discipleship, we're always going to try to stick a label onto this. What does it mean to be a a follower? You could call it a follower of Jesus Christ. Or sometimes the scriptures will speak of it in terms of being a believer. Other times, a disciple. Or even just the, the straight up term, Christian Probably the most basic term that you'll find is that of a convert. Now, here's the problem. Every one of these terms can be misunderstood. In fact, they could remain something that is only visible on the outside. I'm going to give you some examples of that. So, as a follower, Jesus gives this warning in Matthew 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So, does that mean you're saved if you're a follower? It, it doesn't. It could, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Or how about believer? Well, James tells us that even the demons believe that there is one God and they shudder. So is it enough to just call yourself a believer? Well, that's not going to work either. Well, how about disciple? I kind of like that one. It's kind of the theme of this study. You think I want to go with it, but there was one of the 12. Do you remember his name? It was Judas. What was he? He was a disciple of Jesus. According to Matthew 26, Jesus says it would have been better if he had not been born. So just being a disciple doesn't cut it either. You're going to find this is the same theme for the next two. Uh, Christian carries a political term behind it many times even in our world today the word gets uh, uh, shared as evangelical it's a very political someone made that political now so you can claim that without ever knowing Jesus and convert um, we're going to study this next week in Matthew 23 uh, Jesus addresses those who are the most religious of all says that you travel over land and sea to make a single convert and when you do you make him twice a son or a child of hell as you are And all of these titles, all of them are asking a single question. They all want to try to answer, are you, right? Isn't that the question? Are you saved? Now, there's a whole other study that we need to go through as a church someday. And I would would hope that some of what we talk about will bring about more questions in your heart. Not that you, you will be left confused. But I think sometimes in our modern world, We have maybe tried to bank on the answer to this question more heavily than we ought. And we have exchanged what should be the expression of God's kingdom on this earth for a form of what some people have called fire insurance. The idea that you're escaping from the fires of hell because you're saved. And the scriptures are going to speak about salvation in a far more complex manner. So complex, in fact, that none of those previous titles will be able to do justice to answering the question, is a person truly saved? And so for this, I want to try to give us something to work with as we are going to go through this series. The first is this, a disciple is a follower of Jesus, but we have to insert another little word in there, is a true follower of Jesus. So in this series, as we throw around that term, disciple and discipleship, this will be the definition that we're going to assume together. That when we talk about being a disciple, what we mean is you are actually a true follower of Jesus. Throughout the New Testament letters, this becomes one of the primary reasons the Apostle Paul will bring confrontation to the church. Because in so many ways... It looks like they may call themselves Christian. They may call themselves followers. They may call themselves believers. But by their actions, they deny him. And we got to be very careful, therefore, that we don't fall into that same trap. I was talking with a friend of mine just before service today. He said, just because you sit in the garage doesn't mean you're a car. Translated means just because you come to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you were baptized once in your life, just because you give a tithe, none of that is a guarantee that you're actually saved. And so what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, it it means to be somebody who is truly following Jesus. In fact, the word disciple means student. Like at its very base level, it's somebody who is a learner. And in Jesus's day, one of those who was a learner, who was a student would find a teacher, and they had a Hebrew name for that. It was called a rabbi. And those students would follow wherever the teacher goes. And in following the teacher, they would learn to look like the teacher, act like the teacher, talk like the teacher. That's what made them a disciple. Um, Okay. Are we good on that? You guys with me on this definition? A disciple is going to be a true follower of Jesus. So how about the term discipleship? Here's the definition that we're going to go with for this series. Discipleship is a process that matures believers through right thinking and right living. For the purpose of making more and better disciples. I tried to shorten it as, long, as short as I could, you guys. I really did. Um, there's a lot packed into that definition. Let, let, give me just a second to unpack a few things. First of all, I want you to see discipleship is not a one-time deal. You don't say, I follow Jesus one and done. That's not how it works. Discipleship is a process of how you live. It's something that you will go through daily in your journey. Secondly, It is a process that is designed to grow you up. Jesus in no way desires to have those who follow after him remain as infants in their faith. He desires to grow you and mature you. In fact, this word mature is a a, a critical idea because, um, as you will see, the purpose of discipleship is on to reproduction. And so in the very same way that children have to grow up into adults, such as adults, they are able to reproduce themselves. This is exactly the purpose of discipleship. We are, we are pursuing this process because it is our goal to make more disciples, but not just more, to make better disciples, of which the first one is who? Turn to your neighbor and say, it's you. I feel like three of you did that. Who's the primary one who's going to be growing up and maturing? The primary one is who? It's me. It's me. Even though discipleship as a process is given with the goal of helping to extend the glory of God both across the world on the horizontal, it's also designed to increase the glory of God into the vertical depth of your life. That God wants to see you grow. And there's a dynamic that we're going to talk about more between those two as we enter further into this series. The problem with these two definitions, however, is that you as a church, I'm speaking to you now, you have inherited a tradition that allows church to remain a spectator event in terms of its participation. Do you guys know what I mean by that? That's what we've all inherited. This idea that church is something, I mean, just frankly, look at how we're all seated, right? Uh, who? who is, Here's only one person chatting away up here. Everybody else has no role to play. Do you know how easy it is to be a nominal Christian in our world? All you gotta do is all you gotta do is come and sit. Feel a little guilty, you can write a check, put it in the plate, right? That's it. And then leave. And we have made it such that you and I become hoodwinked into thinking, good job, you're a good Christian. That's not what a Christian is. You've inherited this. You didn't invent it. If we, if we inherit this, however, we got to be very careful that we don't become unintended, unintended uh, practitioners of it. I, I know as I'm speaking to the church, I look at so many faces out here. It's, really, it's going to be really hard at grace for you not to continually hear a message that God has gifted you to get busy with the gift of blessing the body. That's going to be hard for you not to hear. We talk about it all the time. Every single one of us who knows Jesus as Lord has a manifestation of his spirit given for the common good. It's not for you. It's for all of us. And so get your butts busy. That's, that's the rough translation that I, I would give. All right. I'm getting a little too loose here. All right. Hold on. Let me get settled. I shouldn't say butts in church. My mom's looking at me. <laughs> this is the problem. The problem is you as a congregation have inherited church as a spectator event, and it is not a spectator event. It is a game to which you are either helping by being on the field or you are actually hindering us because you're, you're, you're part of the team. You got to get on the field with us. You got to get busy. Now, it's not just a congregational danger in that. There's a clergy ain't danger for this as well. The problem for clergy is that we have adopted a, I had to write this down, donor appeasement mentality. You guys know by that? Donors? Do you know who pays me? All right, let me, let me frame it to you with an illustration I know you're going to understand. What do politicians do? Well, what does a politician do? They seek to keep who happy? Their conti- constituency, they, they have to keep their people happy because if they don't keep their people happy, they do not get funding and they get voted out of office. And far, far too many pastors have adopted that as to how they lead a church. That you know what my job is just to make sure I don't get you upset, just to make sure I keep you happy, just to make sure I meet your expectations and you know what we do? We play church at that point. That's not church anymore. This is some weird absence of the heart and life behind what God designed for his family. If clergy and pastors are only trying to seek the appeasement of their donors and if the congregation feels like full participation means I put my butt in a seat and then I left. We're getting it wrong. That's not what this is about. Instead, you and I need to know that there is a battle that's being waged. There's a war that's happening. And because of that, it is, it is my gifting and job to help resource and prepare you to be active in that fight. The Apostle Paul frames it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastor teachers to equip his people for works of service. I don't do the works of service. I, I can't do it all. It's not like this is a beehive and you've got one little, one bee who's doing all the reproduction and everybody else is just coming for honey and leaving. Some, some churches act like that, you know. So, some Christians are content with that, that that's why we pay and hire the pastor so that he can help multiply and create more, of, more Christians. That is the wrong picture of it. Who does the work of service to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And so because of this, these are the definitions that we're going to work with this morning as we walk through this study. A definition that helps us to see a disciple is a true follower. That's my hope for you. Coming to church is going to do you no good if you think that's all it means. You need to have more than a spectator level participation in God's family. And discipleship, therefore, means that we are all in process of growing ourselves and together helping to grow God's family. Um, there's one little last part to unpack, and some of you may have caught it back when we studied missions. Two ways we do that, through right thinking and through right Living. What were those two quiz words I gave you? Do you remember orthodoxy and orthopraxy? Do you remember that? This is exactly what Jesus says. Go make disciples how? By immersing them or baptizing in the Greek. By, by continually saturating their whole lives with the doctrine that is true of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Right thinking. And by, Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Well, what is it that Jesus taught? He taught how we are to live our lives. And so the, we're going to come back to that and study that again in more depth. But those are that's the strategy by which Jesus has offered to the apostles, by which we see laid out for us in the New Testament, the strategy from Peter and Paul and James and John. This is how you make disciples, through right thinking that leads to right living. And when you and I do that, we will make more and better disciples. So with that in mind, I want to bring you then to what I believe is the greatest problem in our lives, the greatest threat to being a disciple. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to, turn with me to Mark's gospel in chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. As you're turning there, we're only going to look at uh, mainly one verse, but a verse that is going to highlight for us, and what I want you to watch for, two problems. So there, there's going to be a, a primary error that you and I are born with that is not external to us. But as we approach Jesus' warning about this error, what I want you to watch for in my message is that I will highlight Two problems that you and I cannot solve on our own. Okay, everybody with me? That's our goal. So we're gonna read through a short little bit of the text, uh, find the key issue, and then look for these two problems. So Mark chapter eight, we're gonna start in verse 34. Mark records, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would follow after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, verse 35 is going to move us a little further than I prepared to go for this morning. But isn't that one verse enough? You guys with me that there's enough packed in that tiny little verse? If you are going to follow after Jesus, he literally tells you how to do it. And this is where it gets painful. What did Jesus say? If you're going to follow after Jesus, you must first deny yourself. This word deny means to lose sight of one's own interests. And this is where we have the greatest problem. Because we're so used to dealing with idolatry as this thing that's external from us, right? I mean, it's the internet or it's TV or it's the NFL game that's playing, or whatever it might be, right? It's easy for us to think that those become kinds of idols around us. But Jesus doesn't mention anything external. The primary listing for being a disciple, being a follower, is that you would deny something that's happening internal. And I already told you, there were two times in my life where that identity change caused me to deny myself. If you're married and all you do is think after yourself, how's that going to go? You're going to run into a lot of problems, a lot of trouble. Because there has been an identity change. Two have become one. If you're a parent, if you're a father, and you only think through what you want for yourself, how's that going to go? Those children will be starved for discipleship. And your family will be left tattered and in ruins. In two places in our lives, we are able to see with almost crystal clarity that the answer to doing it right means a denial of myself, a sacrifice of myself, that I have to take this which would cause me to desire above anything else my way and I have to put it aside for the sake of another. I have to lose sight of my own interests. There's one main observation that I want to give you from what Jesus has said here. It's simply this, that the self is the primary idol of our world today, with power, pleasure, and pride being its main shrines. The primary idol of our world is self. Now, there is a 40-minute rant that I can go on that's dealing with the issue of sexuality in our culture today. That the full defense of what you and I see happening in the world rests upon an elevation of the definition that comes from me and myself. How I feel and how I feel in regards to largely this second altar of pleasure. What makes me feel good. I want you to know that this same idol, though, will be manifest in these three shrines according to power, pleasure, and pride. You may know them more um, accessible with the terms lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. All of those shrines are rooted at the single source of the idolatry of self. I want you to know too that this is the the greatest and number one hurdle for non-Christians to come to faith. That we have taught in our world that the only way that I could believe in a God is if you can satisfy my own intellectual standards. If you can convince me that God exists, well, then maybe I will be a Christian. And who is ruling on the throne of that person's heart? Themselves as the judge. Now, it's easy for you and I to throw stones at the atheists. Come on, right? Isn't that easy? Super easy. Oh, but what about your own heart? How about you? Are you perhaps still so keenly comfortable with deciding and discerning what is right and wrong, not based off what God has said, but based off what you think is right, and that you do so for one of these three reasons? I, I, I hope you can see the danger of this and how the greatest threat In our world today is the idolatry of self. Now, this isn't new. I think it's manifest a little clearer in our world. But this goes all the way back to what we heard Sue read this morning out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, we have the beginning of discipleship. For the Jews, according to God's design, he says to them, these are the commands and decrees and laws that the Lord has directed you to teach and to observe in the land that you're crossing over the Jordan to possess. So that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as they live. By keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you. And so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey. So that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land. Flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. These commands I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and and on your gates. It sounds like a lot of what we would say today is the, the requirements of discipleship. You need to do all these things. I want you, however, though, not to miss what comes right after this. Just a few verses later, this is what the Lord says. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. Uh, Thankful for our confirmation students from last Sunday. Um, They were able to give um, by memory the Ten Commandments. I was going to quiz you guys today, though. You ready? Everybody ready? What's the first commandment? You got it, right? Do you see that God's not hiding this as the main problem? God's not like, surprise, here's the thing that's going to get you. He's like, number one. This is the first thing I have to tell you. Any other God in your life will lead you into destruction and harm. And so for your own good, for goodness sakes, no other gods. No other gods. Here's the, here's the problem. The self becomes a false God. The self becomes an authority to which we elevate above God. And so the problem would be simple if it were only for the external idols that can be burned in the fire. But the root of the problem is actually internal that the most dangerous false God that you and I will ever face is dwelling right in your own heart, and it is the self. Jesus comes and says this if anyone would follow, he must deny the self. You must deny yourself. Take your interests, the things that you would rule and desire, for power, for pleasure, and pride. And you need to lay them down. Now, it gets a little better than that. It's not just that you need to lay them down. For God's commands are extremely clear, scattered throughout the Old Testament. Do you know what it was that you were supposed to do with the foreign gods? When you encounter the nations, and they have a pagan idol, and God's people come and they encounter that... Do you know what they're supposed to do? You guys got it. To, they are to destroy completely those idols. I, um, I only, I'm going to put two examples up here. We could put 30. I'll just give you two of them. Uh, Exodus 23. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them. And break their sacred stones to pieces. Deuteronomy 12. Destroy completely all the places on high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations that you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones and burn their Asheroth poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out all of their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Uh, we were in Deuteronomy 6. You should check out Deuteronomy 7. It says this exact same thing. And so with crystal clarity, do you know what you're supposed to do when you encounter a false god? You're supposed to destroy them. You know what it's like? It's like a spider. Who likes spiders? Anybody? Um, thanks, Sarah, ruining my illustration. You know what my wife does when she sees a spider? What do you do when you see a spider? hunt? Yeah, screams, like a spider, and then she can't kill it. Who's got to come kill it? I got to come kill it. All right, just go with me on this illustration for a moment, because in the exact same way that you and I want to just completely eradicate from our lives this thing that shouldn't be there, that's the same heart-mind attitude that God wants you to carry when it comes to idols and idolatry at large, that wherever that shows up, you and I squash it and get rid of it. And this is where I want to bring to you, however, the very first problem in this sermon. Here's the very first problem. As we look to the record of the Jewish people, God gave them that command. God gave it with crystal clarity. And we see time and time again, they obey it. God's people will do exactly what he said. They will destroy these false gods who are around them. And yet what is the end result still? there remains one God that goes on living and breathing. Here's the problem. You can crush every foreign idol and you can still fall. You can orient your life according to God's perfect design in keeping every commandment and yet there will be one false God who still lives and remains. The Apostle Paul centers in on this as he recounts with pride the foolishness of boasting. The Apostle Paul, did he have a lot to boast about? He'll say, if anybody thinks they have confidence in the flesh, he's like, I could beat you. I have more than you. And he lists off every criteria by which he could measure up to the command of God. And then he says these words that those things which were to my profit I now consider loss for sake of knowing Jesus Christ. I consider them rubbish, for I have lost all things, that I may know Christ and that I may gain him alone. And so here's the problem. As we are entering into a study on discipleship, we will be playing fake little church. If all you hear from this pulpit is you need to obey this and do this and try harder and orient your whole little life around demolishing all the gods, and all the while there remains one alive, a false idol of the self, you cannot get around Jesus' is teaching. If you will follow him, you must deny yourself. And the problem is, you are all still breathing. Isn't that the problem? That's the exact problem. And so what we need is we need someone to come and do for us what we cannot do. That's the second problem I'll get to in a minute. Let me give you some conclusions. Uh, this is where we've been so far. Number one, the greatest threat toward discipleship will be thinking according to the things of men. Look with me back into the text real quick. Mark chapter 8. We find verse 34 right on the heels of what is probably the greatest interaction of confrontation in the Gospels. Jesus asks the question, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, you're the Christ. And then he tells them, Jesus tells his disciples that he must go go to Jerusalem and be handed over to the religious uh, leaders. He must be killed. And good old Pete hears this. The apostle Peter hears Jesus talking like this. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, you got to stop talking this way, Jesus. Peter rebukes Jesus. Look with me in Mark chapter 8, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd along with the disciples and he said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. We cannot read verse 34 without reading it in the context to which Mark records it. Because Pete's problem was idolatry. And that idolatry was manifest because he was thinking about what? Jesus tells us, right? He was thinking about the things of man, not the things of God. And so here, first conclusion, the greatest threat to our discipleship will be thinking according to the things of men. And I want you to know, like that's so many churches, how they've operated. Like we've looked at the... St- I gotta, we go back in time, you know, all the way to the third century. And instead of meeting around tables in homes as families, by the 3rd century, the church started to meet in the exact same way the Roman Senate met. They started to dress up their leaders in fancy robes, and they started to separate with this foreign division between laity and clergy. Where did that come from? You're not going to find that in the scriptures. We, we have inherited a structure of church religiosity that will turn you into a spectator and turn me into a politician because we will be thinking according to the things of men. It's the greatest threat to your discipleship and mine. Number two, the things of men are governed by the self. Who who is it that has the authority to determine these things? Well, in your life, it will be the seat of authority, which is the self. Whatever you think will be the thing that you do. And whatever you think is right or wrong, that will be that which you ascribe to. And so the governance of these things in our minds are held by the self. The self is a false authority. We've already looked at that. The self is this living, breathing God. And so number four, to follow Jesus, you must deny the self by rendering it destroyed. Jesus says it a little bit differently, but I think the message hopefully is clear. I don't know if you've even ever thought of it in this sense. What does he say? If you'll come after me, you must deny yourself. And what was the second part? What in the world? What in the world does that mean? Take up your cross. I I have heard it um, used in the sense of, well, this is my cross to bear. I got to put up with this person. Have you ever heard it that way? That's not what Jesus meant. When Jesus talks about taking up your cross, he's speaking to the exact same commands that his father gave to the Israelites. What what was it? What was it that God said in Deuteronomy? He said that if you are going to characterize your life after God, follow after him, love him with what? Your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that the crystal clarity came that when it comes to other gods, what were you to do with them like a spider? You were to destroy them completely. Jesus is saying the exact same thing. He's saying the exact same thing. Deny yourself. No other gods. Take up your cross. You need to destroy that false god. And this brings us to the second problem. The first problem is any form of external obedience to anything you find in the scriptures that leaves the self reigning will be to follow after idolatry. That's the first problem. And we're all still alive. So the self is there. The second problem is you cannot kill it. You cannot kill it. I mean, come on, haven't you tried? Right, let's, let's get testimony time in here. How, how, how much of your life has been a pattern of trying to do better and be better and like frankly measure up to whoever you think is better than you? And yet you fail, and yet you fail, and yet you fail. So yeah, there's a bit of a pickle, pastor. Even though that's what Jesus said and you're telling me we can't do it? That's precisely what I'm telling you. And that's the bad news. I got some gospel news for you though. Romans chapter eight. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. A little earlier in Romans six. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is the best one that I know of in Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the way you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, Rage, malice. Where's your, where's your paper, Rosanna? Just read the whole bottom half of your paper. That was the whole list. Rid yourself of filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've, what? Here it is. Since you've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. You can't do it. Jesus did it. That was the big amen. You can't do it. Jesus did it. Amen. amen. The problems that we face in looking at this form of idolatry or any form of external conformity to the law will still lead to death because the law, according to Romans, was powerless in that it's weakened by your sinful nature. So you can't do it. It's impossible. That's the second problem. The self will live. How do I I kill the self? How do I destroy the self? Jesus did on the cross. And so when you have your identity changed, you will also be found in him having that old self crucified. It is dead and it is gone because I am united with Jesus in his death. And then Jesus' life provides for me and for you a new life to live in. And this is what we are going to embrace as discipleship. Now, I want to make sure I've covered all the bases here. I want us to really ask the question, therefore, like, how do I know then if I'm a true disciple? Like, that, Isn't that what this study's about? Discipleship? How, how do I know if this is happening in my life? If this is something that, it, that I can hold to as an identity change. And I want to give you this first application. Number one, put to death the old self. I want you to see this in terms of this question. Ask the question, who is in control of your life? When I was a kid growing up, uh, I remember my parents went to Best Buy and they got this 24-inch Sony TV. (laughs) Awesome. Biggest TV I've ever seen in my whole life. (laughs) It was so big, so deep. And when you press the power button, it would go, you could hear the static electricity, like little pixies off the screen. And it had this remote control that was the size of a boat. It had this, it was about this big. It had this big green button up at the top. And do you know who got to hold the remote? (laughs) 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 My dad got to hold the remote. And we got three channels. <laughs> and he could switch before. Yeah. Who was who in control? Yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's what it looked like to be in control. You could use another illustration, driving a car. Like if your life was a car, who's, who's behind the wheel? Right? Being in control, meaning that I, I am going to decide, we turn here, speed up here, slow down here. If your life is a car, who's driving? This is is what it means to ask the question, so who is in control? Because it's either the self or it's Christ. It's one or the other. Either you hold the remote in your life, either you are behind the wheel in your life, or Jesus is, and Jesus is the one helping to direct and change what that looks like. And in very simple words, that means you need to put to death the old self, and you do so by identifying with his death. On the cross, I follow Jesus. Which brings me to my second one. Daily put on Christ. Put off the old. Put on the new. Now the key word here is, well, every one of those words is the key word. I want to pay attention to daily. You sang it already. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning. When do you and I need to put on Christ? Every single day. And we might look at it in this sense. How often do you need to love your spouse? How often do you need to live to serve and help your children as parents? How many days do you need to... Every day you need to do that. And therefore, the same is true for you and I when it comes to following Jesus. And so that's the question. Who are you following? Who, and you, who are you and I choosing to follow? I want to make sure that as we're entering into this study, that you know that this is a repetitive daily way of life. And that there is no version of discipleship that is a one and done. If that has been something that has been in confusion in your life, I hope that today you let the Spirit of God help just shape you to say, no, I need to do this all the time. I need to do this every day. And following, following means being willing to be shaped to have everything I thought I know to be correct changed so that I will no longer think the way the world thinks as the things of men, but like Peter needed to do, I will instead adopt into my heart and my mind the things of God. Now, all right, we're at the end of the sermon, but this is where it gets, this is where it gets real because there's no version of doing this and keeping your hands clean. There's no, there's no version of that. If you truly are going to be used by Jesus, then you're going to have to listen to what Jesus says. He says, no servant is greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And it means, first of all, dealing with whatever sin is in your life. That's where it starts. Beyond this, it means you being willing to be offended, both by the world and by virtue of God's design to grow you with one another, to love each other. He will ask you to practice that right here before he sends you out there to do it. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, church, that this is not easy. That this is the reason why so many pastors become politicians, Because frankly, it's very hard. This is why so many congregations become spectators. Because it's so much easier just to go to church than actually try to be a true disciple. And so I I want us to pray together. I want us to pray that if you are willing with me to walk through this over the next few weeks, that you're prepared to get your hands dirty for it. I hope you know what I mean by that. But that you would do so knowing that you have a Savior who goes ahead of you. He's gone ahead of you. And like a shepherd who says to the sheep, come, come, follow me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together today.